Hello everyone, you're listening to Bible Coffee Talk with Allie Benfield, and I'm so happy you're tuning in. I hope you're well and living your best life for Jesus Christ. On my podcast, we talk about subjects that some, if not most of us, are either going through, dealing with, or just want more information about. But we apply the Bible and the love for our Savior Jesus Christ, hoping that it will enrich our lives and help us as we walk righteously in obedience with the Holy Spirit. And we do it while enjoying a hot cup of coffee together. Because after all, this is a fellowship between friends. Am I right? So grab your coffee and your Bible, and let's learn more about Jesus Christ. Sound good? Awesome. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on Bible Coffee Talk with me, Allie Benfield. Today I'm drinking a caramel drizzle coffee, and it's... It's not, well, it's not too bad. I mean, it's not my favorite, but I will drink it. <laughs> um, today's episode is actually my testimony. And initially, I wasn't going to share it. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you to, to do something, you listen and obey. And my story starts out as a tragedy. But let me tell you, it ends up uh, in triumph. So praise God for that. Before we continue, uh, you know the drill. I just have to turn the entire podcast over to the Lord for his blessing. So let's pray, shall we? Abba God, we come before you seeking your face as we gather together in fellowship. Father, I ask that the words which come out of my mouth bring glory and honor to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit works through the hearts and minds of those who need your direction and counsel. I ask that your spirit remove any lies or anything worldly that Satan has duped people into believing, and I pray that those who belong to you hear your word and know your truth. Fathers, we settle down to fellowship together and worship you. I pray that you draw close to us so that your beautiful presence is felt. I ask you for these things, these things, and I thank you for your goodness. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Whew. So, I hope you have a comfy seat and a steamy cup of coffee and your Bible. Because on my podcast, we reference, read, and apply the Bible to everything. It's my go-to and my fact checker. I do read the King James Bible because it's the least tampered with Bible out there, but I will use the NIV Bible if a verse is tricky or complicated to understand. So, yeah. Uh, Before I begin, I just want to say that there are a few things in my testimony that uh, I am going to leave out only because, uh, one, they're very dark, uh, and two, they're still so super painful for me. Um, The only person that I've really shared them with uh, used them against me, and, um, excuse me, Uh, since then, I just, I only speak about it and take it to uh, Ava, Uh, so that's, that's about that's about that. So uh, I grew up in a well-to-do family and my father had a laboratory where he made custom ear molds and hearing aids for the deaf, which back in the day, if you remember, they there was this technology that uh, <laughs> it was a box that hung on a chain around someone's neck with this little cord that was attached to like an earpiece that you put in your ear. And every now and then, if you were like in the wrong frequency, it would make this high pitch whistle that would just everybody around you kind of like just cringed. (laughs) So my dad was, was making the next up and coming thing, the, the newer hearing aids for that. And he also had a, um, a marble quarry as well as other businesses. So to say that I grew up with money is, is an understatement. I pretty much got whatever I wanted and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that you hear people saying, you know, Oh, I had it so rough. And if I'd only had money when I was growing up, let me tell you, money doesn't buy happiness. It really doesn't. It, it is the root of all evil. Um, I just want to put that right out, right out there, right up front. I was born, um, into a born again, Christian family. Uh, all the kids in my extended family went to a youth group on Friday nights. And in the summertime, we went to something called pitch and praise, which is a massive camping trip for all the youth, uh, in all the churches. There would be pastors and chaperones and parents and kids of various ages. And they'd all go to this, this campsite, um, it was this big, huge open plot of land and they would go there and they would pitch their tents and they would literally worship God, all of them. And there was, I, I remember a huge tabernacle and there was a stage and, um, people would pack in this huge, huge tabernacle and the, the side walls would come up and people would stand outside and bands would be playing. I mean, there was 
DC Christian Talk, there was Amy Grant, there was LL Cool J. I mean, there were big names back in the in the 80s that uh, came to to preach and testimony, give their testimony. I mean, it was incredible. However, my mother was a Jehovah's Witness, and she had bounced back and forth nearly my entire life. She was raised Jehovah's Witness, and then she went back. Uh, she converted to um, a Baptist when she married my dad, and then she went back. And I mean, it was back and forth and back and forth. So there was a lot of holy wars in my house where my dad and my mom would kind of bicker and argue about their faith, which one was the right faith. And and for a time, I had gone to the Kingdom Hall just to see what my mom was uh, believed in, what she was studying, because I was curious. And, and right off, I just got to say, the whole faith is just messed up. It doesn't uh, coincide with the Bible at all. From a very young age, uh, I'm just going to go back a little further. Uh, I was sexually abused. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into this because the pain, like I said, and the events that occurred from this young age, they still haunt me. Um, but I started acting out and misbehaving. And eventually I stopped talking altogether. My behavior got to be so questionable and so bad that I was given a counselor from the Children's Aid Society, which if you're listening in the States, that's comparable to a uh, CPS worker. Um, they knew that I had been abused uh, sexually, but I wasn't naming names. I wasn't speaking. And before too long, uh, they had made me what's called a ward of the state. And I was removed from my home and put into a group home. Um once I was shown around and taken to my room, my parents had left. And the rules for all the new people that were coming in, uh, they weren't to have any contact with their family, uh, either visits or by phone, for a month. And that was to help them settle in and get familiar with their new surroundings. It was explained to me that since I was the only girl at the time, they were sticking me uh, in a bedroom at the end of the hall on the boys' floor. Um, and at the other end of the hall was the staff's office. And that was just so that they could keep an eye on me instead of sending me up to a completely vacant floor on the third floor. There were eight boys in this house and I was the only girl. And to say that I hated this group home is such a gross understatement. I mean, I was teased mercilessly. I was picked on and beaten up. Um, because I was so homesick, I couldn't sleep at night, which made me exhausted during the day. Uh, there were times that I would sneak out of my room and I would go downstairs. I would have a snack in the kitchen or I would go into the TV room to, to watch some TV. Uh, and then I would kind of sneak up back to my room. But there was this one time that I had snuck down to the room and I was actually raped by two of the boys. Uh, they both held me down. They had taken turns and they had hurt me so badly that I couldn't walk to go back up to my room. Um, I literally had to crawl. And the next morning when the staff had come to tell me to get ready for school, uh, they were horrified to see me because when they had put me to bed the night before, I was fine. And when they're coming to check on me to tell me to get ready for school, I had bite marks on my neck, my shoulders. There were bruises by my jaw and my mouth. I never said a word. I, I never said a word. I was scared. School was the only joy that I had. Uh, it was in a house, uh, but it got me outside. And all the kids that went to the group home went to different separate schools in different uh, house-like school settings. Uh, and I loved mine. I loved my teachers. I loved the subjects. I loved the work that I was given. I thrived. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not bragging, but I did. I didn't like the schoolwork. Uh, the boys in the group home uh, used to give me these like evil smiles and smirks, and, and, and I just knew I wasn't safe there. Um, I'd run away a couple times uh, because I was really scared. Um, and being a small child in a busy downtown street where there's prostitutes and drug addicts and they're, they're selling drugs and doing drugs and there's homeless people wandering around, and here I am from the country, <laughs> out of my elements here in this city life at like two in the morning. Uh, it was, it was pretty scary. And a cop had seen me and had brought me back to the group home. Honestly, I can't tell you how many times I had run away. I just, I hated it there. I hated it. And it wasn't until my grandmother passed away, leaving uh, everyone in the entire family, <clears throat> excuse me, um, money. And when I had learned that I had an inheritance, I actually drained the account took the cash to a lawyer's office uh, in the city. I remember I walked in and I told them I wanted to speak to a lawyer. The receptionist looked at me like I was completely insane and told me that, <laughs> yeah, right, stop, you know, wasting her time to skedaddle kind of thing. Um, I remember I opened up my book bag and dumped like this wad of cash and it just fell like rain on her desk and her mouth hit the floor. And it wasn't until I kind of saw to the, the 
the side of my my vision um, this woman who was sitting on a desk uh, talking to the other lady that was sitting behind the desk she'd gotten up and she'd come over to me and told me that she was the lawyer and she took me right in to to see her to speak with her and it probably was about an hour and a half um, that when I walked out of her office uh, she was now representing me uh, to fight against child protective services uh, so I could go home and within four months I was granted my freedom and I was allowed to go back home to my family but this isn't where this starts my happily ever after this is actually where things started to get really bad for me um, the isolation came the depression came the guilt came followed by the suicide attempts and the last attempt um, is where I was admitted for uh, taking too many sleeping pills and cutting my wrists and I didn't want to I wanted to make sure that I did it right because I didn't want to be another one of those failed suicide attempts where people say oh she's just crying out for attention I didn't want to be one of those people and I didn't tell anybody about it I made sure I was home completely alone um, like I had made sure that that this was going to be carried through and and I, I wanted to die um, let me just, you know, sidebar here, just say, when you're going against what God wants, God's going to make sure it doesn't happen the way you are anticipating or planning it. I should have died that day. I really should have died. I hit uh, open veins. I was bleeding out. I had taken so many sleeping pills. The house was empty. Uh, I was I was good to go. People weren't supposed to come back for hours. The fact that my mother came home early from a Bible study because she'd forgotten something and came to my room to check on me. That's the grace of God right there. And, and I just want to give up all praise and glory to him. I woke up in the hospital with a tube being shoved down my throat with the most disgusting black liquid. And it, what it does is it adheres to the pills and then you throw up. And I remember puking everywhere. I mean, it was <laughs> the black, like water hose everywhere. I was put in a room on 24 hour watch and I was given my own room eventually so I could roam around freely in the ward, but I couldn't leave the hospital. Um, and this initially was where I met my husband. Uh, during group, he had shared that he was despondent over his girlfriend who had taken their two kids away and left him for another man, which left him shattered. I kind of kept my distance from everyone. I didn't say anything. I didn't participate in group. I just sat there. Um, I would pretty much just draw in, in my sketchbook and sit in the chapel where the pretty stained glass was because I liked that. That made me happy. And this guy pursued me. I mean, where I was, he seemed to show up. Where I would sit to eat my meals, he would show up to read or sketch in the rooms that I was in. I mean, he, were, he was just like a shadow kind of thing. And before too long, we got to talking. When I would go to the chapel, he would show up and we would chit-chat. Um, and eventually, we became good friends. When I got out of the hospital, I returned home and I was contacted by him. He said that he had to go to his apartment to clear everything out and asked if I would join him and help because he was doing it by himself. And I told him I would, but I'm only going as a friend, and he agreed. In the course of the month, uh, he had gotten out of the hospital, found a new apartment, and had asked if I would move in with him. And at first, it was just as roommates, because he needed help paying the rent, and because I was still living with my parents, I was like, uh, yeah. Um, much to the horror of my parents, um, in, in the first week that I had moved out, uh, things did not uh, appear to be room-like conditions. Uh, we were full on in a, a relationship and my parents hated that. They hated this guy. Uh, he had like three strikes against him. One, he was 14 years older than myself. Two, he had two children with another woman out of wedlock. And three, he was Catholic. And that was, <laughs> that was one, two, three, you're out for my dad. He just, he hated this guy. Um, and it was pretty much within the, the second week that we were living together that the abuse started. First it was verbal, then emotional, then came the financial, the social, and then the physical. Um, life, life was bad. Uh, my husband was a gambler. Uh, whenever he got money, he would gamble it away, and then he'd go searching for more. He would take rent money and spend it, leave us uh, stranded, and we bounced around, I think, within... The first 10 years we were married, we had moved 16 times. <laughs> that, that's, that's a lot. Um, 
you stole from people, uh, one of which was my boss. Uh, he had gotten loans from my parents. He had asked for loans from friends who then eventually turned away from him because he never paid it back. Um, he even had one man that was attracted to me that he knew was attracted to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he had asked me to go to this guy and ask for money. And when the guy said, well, he'll give me the money if I slept with him, I told him absolutely no way. And I went and I told my husband, I said, look, I can't get the money. He will only give it to me if I sleep with him. My husband was okay with that. He actually got mad at me and said I should have done it. Um, so that that's the kind of man I was married to. Um, a year after we were married, I found out I was pregnant and he told me he didn't want it and pressured me to abort it. Uh, stupid me. I, I listened. I did it. I didn't want to, but I did it. Two months later, I became pregnant again, and this time I lost the baby, and I was devastated. I mean, I hated myself. I thought that God was punishing me. He took the baby I wanted because I got rid of the baby, the first baby, and it was it was terrible. Depression was really, really bad. Five years later, after uh, we had gotten married, I got pregnant with my son, and my husband was upset when he found out that it wasn't a girl. Uh, a year after my son was born, I found out that I was pregnant again. Um, and he said that he was done. He didn't want a baby. Why are we, you know, fooling around with, uh, the odds here? We had a very healthy baby. Let's leave it at that. Get rid of it. And I said, no, I said, I'm not. And if that meant that I left him with the baby, then I would. Um, and I remember crying to my mother and, and told her and what he had said. And she's like, why aren't you guys using protection? Like, if you don't want the babies, why are you not using protection. And I told her because, you know, he didn't like the feel of condoms and I couldn't use birth control because of my health condition. Um, but I told her, I said that this, this baby now is a little girl and I'm keeping her. I'm, I'm not, that's it. I'm done. Every single day was a fight. He'd scream at me to abort it. Uh, and I would insist that I was keeping it in the end. He came around and once he saw, uh, our daughter, he absolutely fell in love with her. By this time, um, money started coming in from his late father's estate, uh, checks and, and like insane amount of money was, was coming in. I mean, I remember walking to the, uh, end of the driveway. We had a, a farmhouse with a long driveway and at the end would be the mailbox. And I would walk down the long driveway and say hi to the postman and, uh, I'd collect the mail and I'd get these checks for 85,000. And I remember another one coming in like four days later for $22,000. And, you know, two weeks later, another one coming in for 62,000. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Um, eventually his sister came around and sat with him and told him, of course, I was to leave the room, uh, came up with some excuse, excuses to why I couldn't stay there. You know, why don't you go check the kids or why don't you go put all the toys away, the, the toys that the kids play with outside? Why don't you go put them all away? Um, but I, I would listen and he would, uh, his sister had come over and said, you know, that, uh, you know, when dad's money starts coming in, what do you want me to do with it? And that's where I learned that he was supposed to come into like 2.8, hold on, million dollars. Um, that really didn't phase me too much because like I said, I was, I was around money growing up. You know, when I got my driver's license, I had a car. You know, I was driving to school. I was driving my friends to school. Um, whenever we would go shopping with my friends, I always had money. You know, my we were going to dinner to uh, the Royal York Hotel. We were going to Pantages Theater to see, you know, um, uh, shows, you know, live, live shows. I don't know, like, yeah, live shows. <laughs> Anyways, so I wasn't too impressed. Okay, so $2.8 million he was getting. Psh, okay, whatever. Um, none of that was mine. And I knew that I knew that if it's in an estate that it was automatically his, but because we were married, you know, whatever, rapidly, he was making these massive purchases, like big purchases. He bought a boat, he bought cars, he bought, um, uh, eight, uh, what did he buy? He bought a minivan. He bought snowmobiles. He bought a huge camper. Uh, he bought lengthy holiday trips, trips for us where we were flying all over the place. First class. We went out for dinner and he would blow just the two of us for dinner. He would blow almost $600. I mean, it was insane. And he was doing it because he was trying to show off. And I knew he was. Um, at the time, I was a school bus driver. Uh, and I loved it. I loved driving my school bus. And I was happy. I was content being a school bus driver with my husband making 
or, or coming into $2.8 million. I mean, when you look at it like that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I laugh. A school bus driver? What? Anyways, I loved it. Um, but he had bought a business. He bought a 4,000 square foot antique business and that was kind of right up my alley. I knew antiques because my, my parents had them. I was, I knew what they were, what their, their worth was. Um, I, I knew, I knew my thing. And so when he said, you know, he bought this huge 4,000 square antique, uh, business, I was like, awesome. This is great. And I worked there uh, day, day and night, pretty much in the night I was kind of cleaning it and organizing it. Um, I, I established it, uh, while he was go to the auctions and to the estate sales. Um, and it was during this time that he started to cheat on me with my very good friend who was also an antique dealer and all the things that I had told her and confided in her with, she repeated to him. And that just got him really angry. Um, and that's, that's when the beatings started. Um, the control got worse. I was denied to leave our farmhouse. I couldn't even go to the store. He had told people that I was crazy, uh, that I was having some psychotic uh, breakdown and that I needed to be on medication. Uh, and I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know he was saying any of this. Uh, I was given these long laundry lists of chores to complete. Uh, and when he got home, he would do what we would call the white glove inspection test. Uh, if there was lint uh, under the bed, I was punished. If there was dust on the mantle, if the shoes were messy by the door, um, if there was lint in the dryer, dishes that hadn't been put away in the dishwasher, um, if the lines weren't showing on the grass the way he liked, like a golf course, if the barbecue wasn't ignited and ready for him upon coming home, uh, if I didn't have a frosty mug of beer in my hand to give to him when he walked in the door, all these things I would be punished for. I mean, the house had to be immaculate and being in the military in his youth, he liked things pristine and I was, became basically his maid. I was never allowed to leave the farmhouse. The cordless phone, the battery was always taken out when he would leave the house. Uh, the shared computer was encrypted with a passcode that locked me out. Uh, if any time I had to go anywhere, uh, he would write down the odometer reading and um, uh, so he would know where I, how far I was going. And when he was home, he would hide the keys so I couldn't take the car even if I wanted to. Uh, if I had to use the washroom in the middle of the night, he would get up and follow me to the bathroom and watch me use, uh, watch me pee <laughs> just to make sure I wasn't uh, into anything or doing anything that I shouldn't be. Um, when he'd heard about uh, who the Freemasons were, he invited them over to our farmhouse and told me to be on our best behavior and not to embarrass him. I remember these three men had come over, the children and I were introduced, then they made chit-chat. Uh, and I was excused. That's it. I was dismissed. Uh, I took the children outside to play and I sat on the deck near the window so I could hear. Uh, and I heard everything. I heard what it was going to cost for my husband to buy his brothership. Sorry, I needed to have a sip of coffee there. Um, yeah, he, he basically bought his, his membership. Uh, within a week, a man in a red car sat at the end of our long driveway, and he would watch. He would watch the house, watch my activities, what I was doing. Um, he would sometimes stare at me with binoculars. He'd get out of the car and lean against his door and watch me. And there were times he was on his phone, and I didn't know what he was doing. I thought at first maybe his car had broken down. At first, I had gone to him and asked if he needed help or needed to use the phone, and, and he just said, no, thank you. He's fine. But then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, he was there. And I had, had mentioned it to my husband, and he said that uh, it's okay. It's a brother of his, and he's watching me so that he would know what I was doing or what I was up to. If I had a doctor's appointment, uh, this man was in the lobby, or he was in the waiting room. If I had to go to the pharmacy, he was there. If I had to go to the supermarket, he was there. <sighs> I remember putting laundry away once, and I heard this deep male voice coming from my porch deck, uh, and found this man talking to my son. He had given my son a seven, my seven-year-old, a boy knife, which is like this long, you know violent looking knife and was demonstrating how to stab someone in the ribs. I was floored. I mean, I was absolutely incensed. I was so angry. Uh, I had told him to leave. Um, and, and that night 
<clears throat> excuse me, when my husband was sitting in his lazy boy chair, like he normally always did, he would fall asleep. He'd watch uh, Seinfeld and then Two and a Half Men. And usually after Seinfeld, just before Two and a Half Men, he would fall asleep. So I waited for that moment. I quietly went up to the kids' room. I woke them. I put their boots on and I carried them down the stairs as quietly as I could. I tried opening the back um, the back door and uh, I, I didn't think it made a noise, but it might have. Um, and I remember running through the cornfields at midnight and I'm not sure how or why he woke up. He heard something, something had happened. And as I'm running through the cornfields, I can hear him on the back deck screaming my name in, in the pitch darkness. I mean, it was fallout, so it was cold. And um, I just remember hearing, Allie, you bring those effing kids back. It, it, it brought chills to me. I had no money, nowhere to go, no car. I was literally in the country running in the cornfields with my two small children. And I remember. I remember falling to my knees and holding my children and crying out, saying, where are you? Where are you? God. You see, I knew what would happen if I returned and I knew what would happen if I didn't. So either way, I was, <laughs> I was going to get beaten pretty bad. And the threats were being screamed loudly. And, and I didn't know what to do. And so eventually I just thought, you know what? I'll, I'll take my lumps and I took my children back to this house of hell. He didn't say a word to me when I got back. He just sneered at me. Um, I took the children back upstairs to bed and five minutes later, I heard this very low, evil voice at the bottom of the stairs telling me to get downstairs before he had to come up and get me. And that night I suffered. I mean, I suffered bad. Sorry, I just had to take a break for a second. The next day, while he was at work and the kids were in school, there was a knock on my back door and these two big hulking policemen were standing there. And they told me that someone had uh, reported an abuse at the house and had asked if they could come in. Uh, they could clearly see from my face that I'd been attacked. And they had tried for a while to get me to sign a statement. Um, and I wouldn't. I'm, I mean, I was scared. I told them to leave because I was constantly being watched by this guy. Um, and I said I wasn't signing. And they finally, you know, gave me a little scare speech about the uh, statistics of uh, women who stay in abusive relationships, and then they left. Um, five o'clock came, and then six o'clock, seven o'clock, and usually my husband was home by around 5.15. The store closed at five. We only lived about 10 minutes away, so about 5.15 is typically when he would walk in. But he wasn't showing up. And I had called and left him messages, um, uh, but he wasn't responding. And at 7.26, the police came and told me that they had arrested him on my behalf for domestic assault. Uh, he wasn't to come within 500 meters of me in the house, and I cried. I cried. I mean, most people would say, praise God, hallelujah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yes, he was arrested, but everything was in his name. I had... Um, I had nothing. I had no car, no computer. Uh, we were um, way out in the country. I had two small kids, no money. All the bills were in his name and it was the 28th. So everything was due. I remember I walked to a neighbor's house and I had asked to use her phone and I called a domestic shelter. Uh, long story short, um, because of this guy that was watching me, his Freemason buddy, uh, he kind of reported to my husband what I was up to. And four days uh, later, oh, sorry, uh, that night, my husband had shown up at the house and told me that his uh, Freemason, Freemason brothers had made his record disappear, that it wasn't on the system anywhere, that they had one hand did a favor for another, one handshake did another, and they did him a solid, uh, air quotes, did him a solid. And uh, pleased as punch, he walked in the house. He made himself at home. Uh, his buddy had told him what I was up to. And four days later, my husband uh, showed up at my children's school and scooped them and disappeared with them. At this point, I had no phone. 
I couldn't notify them to let them know what had happened between my husband. And I mean, it was terrible. For five years, I only saw my children a handful of times. My husband kept moving with them, so they were never at the same location for long. And, and I suffered during this time. I hated myself. I was away from them. Um, I didn't know where they were. I didn't know if they were safe. I couldn't get to them. The whole time that he was, excuse me, wherever he was, he was telling people that I was crazy, that I was, I mean, it was, it was insane. Um, he was telling people that I was suicidal and that I was in the hospital for depression years ago. But when I would tell lawyers that he was in the hospital too, they found no record. And apparently his Freemason buddies had that little file disappear as well. Um, it, it just became terrible. Uh, during this time, I mean, I had been on my own for about, I'm going to say seven years, seven years. Um, during this time, uh, after seven years, I had met a man and he was the polar opposite of my husband. He was bald. He was tattooed. He was a six foot biker looking guy who I thought had the heart of a teddy bear. And he was everything my husband wasn't. My, like I said, my husband was militant. He was um, stocky. You know, he was he was he was what some would call like a little brick uh, house. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this other guy, this new guy, was nice. He was kind. He was gentle. He was caring. He was affectionate. Uh, he was just everything my husband wasn't. And after five years of my husband taking my kids and running, I finally found them. I spoke to my daughter who told me that her father uh, leaves her and her brother alone for days with no food. Um, when I heard that, I, I actually drove several cities uh, from where I was to where they were. I sat in the car and I waited for my husband to leave their uh, apartment. They were in a, a, a three-floor house. They were on the top floor. Uh, I waited for him to leave and when he did, I mean, when I say I ran like Satan himself were after me, I am shocked I ran as fast as I did and I didn't fall on my face. But I remember climbing up those those back stairwell um, stairs and banging on their door and when they opened it, I cried. I mean, I cried as hard as I could. I knelt and I scooped them up and I held them and then it was as fast as I had done that, I had realized what was going on. I had to get get going. I had to spring into action. I told them to get things that truly mattered to them so that they could bring it with them. Um, and I took pictures of everything. I took pictures of the empty fridge, of the cupboards. I took pictures of all the documentation where he owed people thousands of dollars. I went through his personal papers. I took the kids' health cards, their SIN cards, their passports. I mean, I even took my will and my life insurance policy back. He even had that. I brought the kids back to my home, made the appropriate phone calls and to let the authority know uh, what had happened. Uh, and then because I was scared, I took the kids to my boyfriend's house in case my husband found out what I did and came looking for us. And we stayed in this very small um, bedroom basement uh, bachelor apartment for a full month until my boyfriend got noticed that uh, too many people were living there and he either had a choice to kick us out or leave himself altogether and find somewhere else. And because I had a very spacious three bedroom condo, uh, it just was a no brainer. So, um, we moved him in with us and soon uh, the abuse started again. The verbal, the emotional, the controlling nature of this, of a, of a man came back. Um, but because I was so in love with this man, I put up with it for so long. Um, the arguments, the, the yelling, the walking on eggshells, um, I'd never know what mood he was in. Um, so I kept quiet, which would set him off. And then things he would say, you know, his charging cord was missing. One of my kids had taken it and, uh, I'd go yelling at the kids, uh, on his, you know, telling me to go get it back from them. And I'd say, where is it? They would say they didn't have it only to him to find that he had it the entire time. So there were lots of moments like that. Um, lots of silent, um, silent treatments given, lots of filthy looks, uh, times that I needed him for my health and he basically walked out and left me uh, alone to, to deal with that. And if that weren't bad enough, then the cheating started. I mean, it started pretty, pretty much right away uh, when he moved in. Um, uh, the, the thing is, is that if cheating weren't enough with a woman, he started doing it with men. 
and he would chat with them. He would put ads up on Craigslist. He would have photos of himself sent, and he would receive them from other people. He would make accounts on gay websites, and it was only by accident that I came to find all this out. Um, just he would set a timer on his phone to wake up and I would check to see what time he was getting up so that I could coincide to have his dinner ready so that I could drive him to work. And I would look on his phone, just kind of looked like tap it to look at the screen to see what time the, the timer was set. And there would be these messages with filthy pictures. So that's how I came to know about it. Um, and when I would approach him on it, he would say, you know, Oh, it's, you know, it's just, um, all he's doing is just chatting with these people. He's not technically cheating on me because it's all done online. Uh, and he's, he's lonely that he's, he's doing it with men because it's just a, a something exciting and taboo. And, um, he's by, but he, he's not stepping out and actually being with another man. So this is the next best thing. Um, I didn't like it and I would tell him to stop and he would say, you know, yep, I'll stop, I'll stop. But he would then shut the accounts down and open it up under a different name. And then that I would find out some way and he would shut them down and open another account under a different name. And it actually, the, the last time that I know that he was doing it, I actually catfished him. He said he wasn't doing it. I kind of saw a picture of what his account was uh, like. And I found this picture of this guy. I went on <laughs> this, this website and chatted with him it was it was very very sexual that he was chatting with me he had made plans to meet with the man persona that i had made up um and i said okay so i'll be there at seven o'clock and he's like great the door will be open seven o'clock came and i sent him a message and i just said as me and i said busted and he's like, what? And I said, yeah, I forget the name I had used as the guy. I'm going to say Peter. Peter won't be coming tonight. Uh, that was me. And he tried calling and calling and calling and calling. As far as I was concerned, I was done. I was done. Um, the porn addiction, you know, watching porn. And it was just, I remember sleeping and feeling the bed shake. And he's laying in bed watching porn of somebody getting raped. I mean, it was, it was very taboo. It was very disturbing. The things that kind of excited him. Um, and that, and I remember laying there crying quietly. Um, anyways, so, uh, eventually, uh, over the years he had, you know, the, the arguments he'd say, you know, I'm packing a bag and going to the holiday inn, but he would go to a bathhouse or, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to work, but he would show up at, you know, a gay cruising spot where he would satisfy himself watching other people have sex. Uh, and I'd had it and, and I was thoroughly disgusted and I had said, that's it, I'm done. And, um, there were other issues. He had made accusations against my kids. Um, so when I had said I'm done, it was, it was the last, you know, feather in the cap. I'd, I'd had enough. Sorry. Um, and when I say that I love this man, I, I, he became like a drug. He became my everything. So as hard as it was for me to break it off with him, that my head and my heart couldn't coincide with one another. And, uh, I had left and we had stopped speaking for a year. And then a year he had messaged me and said he missed me. And we started chatting. I thought things were different. I thought that we could, um, rebuild the relationship because uh, we, we both said that we were sorry that we had said a lot of things that we didn't mean and very soon afterwards uh, the past was brought up uh, everything was rehashed um, the argument started the the yelling the swearing the the talking over top of of me I couldn't say a word in edgewise and we stopped talking again and months went by and then he'd message me again and we'd get back together. And this happened over and over and over until this last time, uh, we were at a house. Uh, I had eventually had enough. And so I had left the condo that I was in the city for a house that a friend of mine was renting. And when we moved, I thought this was going to be our fresh start in the country and everything went downhill. All the things that she had said, my friend had said she was the landlady of this house. All the things that she had said that she would do, she didn't. And the kids and I basically froze. We had, and this is in February, we froze. We had no heat. We had no water. Our basement was flooding. And because it was flooding, the hot water tank wasn't working. And because everything was flooded in the basement, 
apparently we had rats and that drove them all up. And I mean, it was just terrible. Everybody in this small town, she had bad mouthed us. People were giving us dirty looks. Uh, her and her boyfriend were coming into our house without our permission. Um, it was just bad, bad, bad. Uh, the hydro, uh, we had only had one lamp on. We had the TV on, and that's all we had on. Meanwhile, her huge seven-bedroom house, she's got every light on. She's got her trucks plugged in uh, on the trickle charge. She's got her, uh, what is it, her 15 or 18-man seat jacuzzi heating 24 hours all day. I mean, she was burning through hydro, and she's saying, this is what you owe. And she would show me her bill, and I'm like, well, that's for your house. And she'd be like, well, that's what you owe me. And I'm like, mm, no, no, uh, show me the bill for my house and I'll pay that. We have one lamp on, the three of us are charging our phones and we have the TV going and we're all in one room so that we can stay warm because we have no, no propane. No, you, you won't pay the bill uh, for the previous tenants. And it just got to be so bad that because I didn't pay the hydro in her name for her house, she basically said here, sign this. You need to get out of the house. You have 14 days. If you leave in 14 days, I won't take you to court. If you don't, I'm coming after you for court costs for back hydro. And I was like, fine, we'll le we're leaving. I had nowhere to go. Uh, my, the car that she, the truck that she had given me that I was making payments towards, uh, she repoed that. She took that back. So now we're in the country with no vehicle. Uh, no food because I have no way to get to the supermarket because it was miles and miles away. Um, I have to leave the house. I have to find a new apartment or a new place for us to stay. I have to pack everything up, but I have to have boxes. And then I have to take it all to storage, all with no vehicle. I was, I was panicking. And it, this was the, this was the moment, the defining moment where my faith grew exponentially. I prayed. I prayed. Every place I looked at, they were shutting their doors on me. When I managed to get to um, the city that was kind of closer to us, um, the places were dumps. There was hypodermic needles outside. There were roaches and bed bugs in some of these apartment buildings. There were, you know, drunkards sitting outside and it, it got to be really bad. And I kept thinking every time I'd go and look at a place, I don't care. I just need some place to live. I just need a place for my children and I to go. Lord, please open doors. Nobody was, I was denied all over the place. I didn't have the credit. I didn't have the, um, the references. I didn't have, uh, uh a whole lot of money. Um, <clears throat> I, I was just, I was losing it. So before she had taken my vehicle, um, I remember I had uh, paid a lot of money in for the repairs. And when she had taken it, I had gone to, I needed God. I really needed God. And I remember I drove to three churches. I had driven to one and there wasn't a person in or around the church. The doors were open. The lights were off, but the sun was coming through the windows, so there was light inside the church, but there wasn't anybody. There wasn't a deaconess, there wasn't a um, secretary, there wasn't a pastor, associate pastor, guard, there was nobody, nobody. And I remember walking in and I sat down, and for 40 minutes, I cried in one of these church pews, and I remember yelling, and I was, I was giving God the business. I wasn't swearing at him, but I was like, where are you? How can you allow this to happen after everything I've been through? Do you not think this is enough? When, when is my peace going to come? Where are you? Sorry. And I cried my heart out to him. And after 40 minutes, nobody came in and I thought, this is nuts. I'm leaving. So I left and I drove way about maybe 40 minutes away to the next closest Baptist church. I knocked on the door and somebody had opened the door and I said, hi, because it was locked. I said, can I come in and just sit in your sanctuary and just pray? Is there a pastor I can speak to? And she said, no. I said, I'm sorry, what? She said, no. I said, no, there's not a pastor. And she goes, you can't come inside. And she shut the door in my face. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I started swearing at this point. I was mad. I left and I went to another church closed. I could hear worship music inside, but the doors were locked. Nobody was opening it. Nobody was answering the doorbell. I was, you got to be joking. You got to be joking. What churches close their door? What churches deny people to come in to worship and, and seek counsel? I, I left. 
I called around and, and all the shelters were closed. They couldn't tell me, not closed, but they couldn't tell me if they had any openings until the day before we were leaving. And I had three cats, so <clears throat> I had to find places for them to stay. I packed up as much as I could. I called a uh, church uh, that I called a friend who called their church, who had a pastor help me rent a U-Haul um, truck. I loaded the our contents in the truck. I loaded the cats in a in boxes that night prior to all this going on. Um, I called the sh one of the shelters, and the shelter said, "Yes, we have we have a room. We have a bed, a, a room for you, with three beds." And I said, "Well, can my son come too?" And they're like, "Well, how old is he?" And I said, "Well, he's I think it was at the time eighteen. And they're like, "Oh yeah, he can come too." And I'm like, "Are you serious?" And they're like, "Oh yeah." So we. We left, we did what's called a midnight dash. We had packed the truck that afternoon and um, <clears throat> had it sitting at the side of the road. Uh, the kids had walked the night before to the supermarket. Uh, what was it, about nine, nine or 11 miles? I can't remember which it was. Came back exhausted. Megan had passed out. She had blisters in on the soles of her feet that were so bad that when she walked, you could hear the squishing of her blood. It was so bad in her feet. And when she went to have a shower, she actually got out and passed out. She was just white as a ghost. She was so sick. Put them to bed. Uh, got the last little bit uh, loaded in the back of the truck. Slept for a few hours. Woke up at three in the morning prepared everything that we needed to take, put the cats in the boxes, loaded them into the back of the truck, and left. By 3.30, we were out of there, and we had taken everything to storage. I had arranged that, put everything in storage, and uh, went to the, the shelter. We stayed there. The cats could only stay in the Humane Society for 10 days. So I had 10 days to find something before I lost our, our little fur babies. We went to the shelter and everywhere I went, the kids had to come. They couldn't be left alone, but there were, the top floor was for family. The bottom floor were for youth and the bottom floor was, I mean, just rampant in drugs. There were uh, kids who were doing heroin. There were, it was a bad place. It was a bad scene. And I remember praying, praying, please don't turn your back on us. Please help us. Please help me find a place. Everywhere I had looked, doors were being shut in my face. Like I said, I had no credit. I had no references. I had nothing. And one day I went looking and I found this ad and I reached out to her. And for some reason she said, come and see me. Come to the office and, and see me, this management company. So I walked to this management company and I told her the truth. I said, I'm in a shelter and things are bad. And... She said, well, I have two places in mind for you. Would you like to see them? And I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I sure would. So her daughter actually drove me to the first place and my mouth hit the, the ground. It was beautiful. It looked like a beautiful brownstone townhouse uh, in New York. It was gorgeous, gorgeous. And But the only thing was there were a lot of stairs and there was no laundry facilities. And so then she took me to the second place and I just kept getting better and better. The second place had, it was on the main floor, the apartment, it was an apartment, a three uh, floor, uh, 15 unit apartment. And ours was on the main floor and the room right next to where our unit is, is laundry facilities. And it was clean and it had just recently been remodeled. Hardwood floors, rainfall, shower head with a marble shower. Um, it had marble, oh, sorry, granite countertops. It had stainless steel appliances. It had, you know, the, the water and the ice maker in the fridge. It had a floating um, microwave. It had a dishwasher. It had uh, ceiling fans. It had, it was newly painted. It had um, a huge... Um, I'm trying to remember how big it was. I'm going to, I think, I think it was 72 inches, 72 or 79 inch Sony smart TV hanging on the wall. I mean, this, this apartment had everything and it was in my price range. And the fact that she was showing it to me, I said, yes, like this is the one, but I got to get my kids to, to agree. So the next day she brought my kids over. She picked us up. She took us to a, a coffee place, Tim Hortons, and she got us a uh, coffee. I, I, I got us all coffee, but she brought us there. And then she brought us to this, this new apartment. We had a look and the kids were like, man, we love this. Are we, are we able to get it? 
That afternoon I got the keys. Sorry. God is so good. I went from having nothing to being in a homeless shelter with my children. No credit. No references. Every door was being shut. A block away, there's a, a lake. And I remember when we first moved in here. And it was, I got the place just to, to let you know this. The timeline I had was ten days. And I got the place in seven. We moved in. And I remember for the first little while, I would walk down to the water, to the beach. There's benches all around. And I remember sitting there, crying. And I remember saying, Abba, all those times. <sighs> Sorry. All those times I thought you had left me. All those times I thought it was alone. All those times I thought you forsook me because nothing was, was available. Every door was being shut in my face. Not only did you, were you there with me, you went ahead of me. I'm so sorry. You went ahead of me and you were looking out for us. Not only did you not get us the place with the hypodermic needles and the roaches and the bed bugs and the drunken people outside and the fights and the bad part of the, the uh, neighborhood, you got us a place where I haven't had to turn my heat on once in the time that we've been here. Where we froze at the other house, I haven't had to turn it on once it, because it's temperature controlled. We're half down and half above. So when I look out my window, I see um, somebody's knees. It's in the summertime, it's cool. In the wintertime, it's warm. I haven't had to pay hydro I haven't had uh, the, the heating bill I haven't had to worry about it he he looked after us with not only is it clean it's newly renovated not only did I not have a TV he supplied one so when you think there is no way for you when you think God's not there he is he is there you have to surrender all you have to give it all to him this man he wasn't the man for me. He he wasn't. He was he was a distraction. And the minute I surrendered everything, I said I'm not engaging in this this relationship that's not for you. He's not a believer. He doesn't agree with my choices. He uh is is engaging in homosexuality. He's engaged he believes in um uh, just all these things that were against the Bible. I can't support that. I can't be with somebody like that. I won't hurt or grieve the Holy Spirit by being unequally yoked um, with somebody like that. I can't do that to him. Um, for for a while, I had smoked, and I turned that. I said, I can't. I can't do this. Um, I wasn't doing pot because my my health condition. I said, you know, I can't do that. I just turned everything over to him I remember crying my eyes out saying take it take it all I can't I can't carry it I can't worry about it I surrender everything to you I give it all to you 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 were there when I needed you I didn't see you but you took care of us you supplied not only what I asked for but you went above and beyond that see the Bible talks about putting our faith and our trust in the Holy Spirit. He it says that He is our comforter and, and Jesus is our way maker. And we really need to trust in the Lord. We need to surrender all and just we can't say we love Jesus and, and you know we trust him if we don't, if in the moment we don't. And since that moment when I did that, everything in my spiritual life opened up. I started seeing him. I started hearing the Holy Spirit. I started fasting. I started being more obedient. I started being able to speak in tongues. The The discernment, the, the spiritual discernment and the, um, the discerning of spirits, the blessings of the Lord. Uh, in Corinthians, it started coming to me and and, and my faith grew. I started witnessing to people where I would shy away and be afraid and be embarrassed. You know, the Lord says, if you're embarrassed um, or ashamed of me, then therefore, when you are in front of my father, I will be ashamed of you. 
So I think that's what it says. I don't have um, my Bible in front of me right now. It's what time is it now? It's four eleven in the morning. Um, so I, I would I would witness. I would uh, be out and I would see some you know a couple who were um, who were homeless. And I said to my daughter, I said, I I bet you they're hungry. And so I said, I'm going to come back. Do you want to come with me? And she's like, mm, no. And so I, I made a really nice lunch for them and I came back and it was in the middle of winter. It was freezing cold. Um, and I said, you know, uh, she said, you know, somebody had walked ahead of me and she, she's like, excuse me, sir. And he's, he just kept going and she's like, okay, God bless. And I immediately went down and I said, hi. And she goes, Hey sister. I said, hi. I said, are you guys hungry? And she said, oh, we really are. So I knelt down and I said, well, I've got some food for you. And I said, I would really like to pray. You know, are either one of you believers? And she said, we certainly are. And, um, you know, we have our daily bread uh, that we read and, uh, you know, just, I, I just, yes, please pray. And so I had knelt down and I had prayed and it was right by a bowling alley. So people were coming out and there was a shopping mall and, uh, a dollar store, Dollarama was close by. So it was a pretty busy little shopping center. And, um, I knelt down with the, this homeless couple and I started praying for them. And, um, yes. And when I had finished the, the gentleman had said, you know, do you have, um, could you pray for me? Uh, and just ask that I have, uh, strength to endure this. And I said, you bet I can. I said, is there anything that I can give you or bring you or, or help you with? And he said, prayers and socks our, our feet are cold. If you have extra socks, I said, what about blankets? And they're like, yes. I said, coats. And they're like, yes. I said, what about mittens or hats or scarves? And they're like, anything you have. So I came home and, and, um, I had, she had said, you know, here I have a Bible I want you to have, uh, and it's really heavy, but I can't carry it. I would really like you to, to take it for me. I'd like it to go to someone who, who loves the Lord. So please take my Bible. And it was big. It was a heavy Bible. And I took it and I came home and, uh, I got out some blankets. I got some scarves and hats and, and, uh, socks and, and, um, went back and, and just prayed with them again. And they were so grateful. And I remember walking away thinking, thank you. Thank you, Lord. The way that you've taken care of me, if I can witness to others, if I can plant a seed for you so that the Holy Spirit can nurture and grow so that good fruit can grow so that these people can be in the kingdom. The discernment I, I, I feel is I'm able to, to know, uh, the bad from the good. And, and these people, they were homeless. I was homeless. I was in a homeless shelter. But that doesn't mean that they're any less of a person. And the fact that when I asked if you wanted anything, they didn't ask for money. They didn't ask for, for anything like that. He asked for prayers. Um, you bet. You bet I can do that. So I just want to, this is my testimony. And um, I just want to say that uh, my children, I have a 21-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. Uh, I'm 48 years old. Uh, if you could remember them in your prayers, that would be wonderful. I, Both of them, my daughter knows the Lord. She was baptized um, last year, last April. Uh, she's fallen away a little bit. Uh, the, the lukewarm Christian, I would identify her as. My son, not so much. He says he believes, but... He needs a filter over his mouth. He needs he needs to be reined in by the Holy Spirit. And I pray for him. Um, so if you could remember him in your prayers. If you're hearing this message and you, you want to know more about Jesus Christ, I would gladly speak to you about him and, and introduce you to him and pray for you and help you in your journey and your walk so that you can have a personal relationship with him. Um, I just want to share this with you that I've lived a very hard life. I've lived a abuse with abuse my entire life from my childhood to my adulthood God has never left me and when I thought he did he, he hadn't he was just further up ahead preparing uh, he had heard my prayers and he was preparing we need to hold on to our faith we need to hold on to the Holy Spirit we need to surrender all we need to um, walk the walk we need to pray. We need to be in fellowship. We need to read our Bibles, especially now with the, the, the times that we're living in. 
I can't stress enough how good Jesus is and how much he loves you. He died on the cross for you so that you would not be separated from him and be sent to hell. He wants you with him. He died for you. He's coming back. He wants you with him. I urge you to get to know him, to read the Bible. I ask you, if you need help, please reach out to me on Facebook under Allie Benfield. Um, I will pray for you. Uh, I will pray that the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom and guidance and encouragement um, and to remove anything worldly from your mind and fill it with his truth and his goodness. I'm about at the end of my time on uh, this podcast, but uh, I thank you for joining me. I hope that my testimony touched your life. I hope that if you went through anything similar, uh, and if you're maybe still going through something similar to what I just explained, I pray that you turn it over to Christ. I pray that you hold on, you don't give up. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not there. Have trust and believe. Our God is an awesome God and he reigns and he's coming back for us. And I pray that you're amongst those who, who are gathered in the sky with him and brought to the Lamb's Feast. Um, with that being said, I want to say God bless to you. I want you to be encouraged and thank you for joining me. Till next time, guys. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I just wanted to thank you for taking this time with me today to fellowship and learn more about our wonderful Heavenly Father, His perfect Son Jesus Christ, and the incredible Holy Spirit as we apply the Bible to our lives and our faith. I hope that what you heard and learned today has touched your heart and is tended to and ministered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that He fills you with His discernmentship and understanding so that the words of the Bible imprint on your heart with meaning and worth. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning soon, and when He does, I pray that you're among those that are caught up in the sky to meet Him so that you could join in the wedding banquet called the Feast of the Lamb. Until we're together again fellowshipping over coffee, <laughs> This is Ali Benfield signing off. Bye for now, guys.